0: Good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with LaRon Landis. Uh, Patty is off with Aaron. I guess they're celebrating my birthday.
1: <laughs> well, they, they should. Uh, and
0: they should. I think they're probably celebrating Aaron's birthday, which is two days before mine. Um, our guest today is Beverly Hills psychologist, uh, Greg Kason.
1: How are you, Greg?
2: Hey, Gary.
1: David and Ron. Hey there! Always good to have you, Greg. And happy um,
3: birthday, David. Well,
0: thank you very much. It's a oh, bad I'm one. Happy,
3: uh, it's a bad one. Oh, is it a milestone? Oh
0: yeah, it's a milestone. It's a big
1: milestone.
2: <laughs>
1: Do you,
0: uh,
2: I, I can't well? even say it. Uh, so uh, uh, it's, okay.
1: it's the big seven zero.
3: Wow! Right on, and you look amazing. So right on. Yeah, That's right. Amazing. It's, it's amazing good. what using
0: yeah. old pictures will do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: I'm still using my high school pic,
0: but yeah. <laughs> um, we, we had talked during the week about several things that we wanted to talk about, and yeah. you mentioned that this is National Suicide Prevention Month.
3: Yes, in fact, today is, well, it's actually World Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, um, and today is actually Suicide Prevention Day. Well, t- I'm sorry, today's the World Suicide Prevention Day. Around the world, it's the month for the rest of for our nation. Yes, so there you go. We like to do things bigger here in the U.S.
0: Um, I've uh, had a suicide of a friend's child. Have you, Leron?
1: No, I have a suspected, we still don't know. Friend of mine died some years ago and we still don't know. It was suspected though.
0: And actually, when you're saying that, years ago I had a cousin who uh, committed suicide, but the family never talked about it. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. So I didn't know that it was a suicide until years later.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: What can you tell us about um, suicide prevention?
3: Yeah, that's a good question, David, because I think uh there are certain things that we can do to help prevent suicide and we've got to address it at different stages. But most of the time people think of suicide as a single person who has a single ailment. And certainly it comes down to that for all of us. Um Certainly, I I think almost everyone has been affected by a suicide, either by a loved one or someone that they knew of, a friend or an acquaintance. And almost everyone to a person wonders why and how could I have intervened. And then they're often left feeling guilty. And it never really heals. We never really heal from the suicide of a loved one. It never goes away because we're always left wondering no matter how much the person who commits the suicide thinks that they're tying up all loose ends, including saying, oh, it's not your fault, et cetera. So let's go into that. Usually someone who has suicidal ideation is having a very specific mindset where they're seeing themselves as completely separate from everyone else. They see hopelessness, no hope for the future helplessness that they cannot help themselves and worthlessness that they're not worth anything and that often gives them then permission to want to harm or hurt themselves so what we can do is to try to break through that wall but please understand if someone's in that place it will be a brick wall and they won't be listening to immediate uh, rationalization, but you can appeal to them on a very emotional level and that's usually the
1: strongest place to go. You mentioned hopelessness. I remember, God, I don't know, some couple of years ago, there was a suicide and um, everyone was talking about it on internet. There was some discussion. And some people were really, uh, really unsympathetic to people who have committed suicide. They thought it was selfish. They thought, you know, how could you do that to your family, especially if you have little kids? And, you know, of course, in my, of course, I'm not a doctor, but I was trying to yeah. convey that, you know, these people have been hopeless. It's not like they just woke up one day out of, you know, one day out of 365 days and thought, ooh, I'm going to kill myself today. This is something they've been struggling with and probably been hopeless for a long time.
3: Really good, really good point, on. Yes, they've been usually struggling for it for a long time. But usually the suicidal thought is somewhat impulsive um, in the sense that some people do it immediately so that if they have means around, like if they have a gun, something very lethal available, they often will have um, suicides that are completed or that they actually kill themselves. Sometimes when people have to do a little bit more plotting and planning, that time can give them a little change to uh, think a little differently, to wake up the next morning and start see things differently. The people who are very, very serious, and this is the problem, people who get very serious about killing themselves um, and often start to do things like separate from others and tie up loose ends and give away treasured belongings, And they start to appear happier and more together, and they feel some relief because they know an end is inside. And so they start to appear to others like they're making improvements. So everyone around is just breathing a sigh of relief. And really what was going on all the time is the person was planning to kill themselves, and then of course they do without warning and without telling anyone. So it can, it can really come in a, in a variety of different packages. That's the most unfortunate thing. Um, but you know, this—you're very right that the depression that they've been dealing with has been going on for a long time. Unless in in the case that it's a, a mood-based um, disorder and that they they're having extreme highs and lows, and sometimes those extreme highs and lows can also lead to
2: impulsive
0: action. You know, the way you described it is exactly how uh, this son of a friend of mine committed suicide. Um, He had been having breathing problems and he had been operated on at least five times and nothing helped. Um, He moved away from his family, Uh, his family is living in North Carolina. He moved to Austin and uh, um he had been depressed for a while uh, about his breathing problems. Um, yeah. And then one day, he came into work on a Friday, took everybody in his office out to, to lunch. Had, they said, oh, it's so good to see him happy again. Uh, and mm-hmm. over the weekend, he killed himself.
2: Oh, mm. that's
0: so sorry. Yeah, uh, Yeah, and he took pills. So it did take some planning.
3: Yeah. And interestingly enough, in our community with men, pills are a more popular option. But with the growing availability of um, guns, those, of course, are more lethal generally because with pills there might be a chance there's an antidote or that you can pump someone's stomach. Um, but with a gun, it, it's often over mm. just a second. So, it, you know, unfortunately, the more lethal the means, um, the more, you know, you're going to see someone who dies from suicidal attempt. Mm-hmm. So it can be very, very harsh. And, you know, I, I I'll always come back to this, but when I'm working with people who are suicidal, I will talk to them about what I will feel. And it sounds selfish, but how I will miss them, how other people will miss them more, people who know them more, more intensely. And also I ask them some key questions like, so what were you, who are you planning to find the body? And how do you expect them to clean up after that? And what do you think your mother's going to feel when she sees you like that, you know, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And it, it can be a very difficult conversation, It's sometimes when people are that serious, if they're at that place, sometimes you do need to give them a little shock. Um, But generally, you can catch people before they get to that point. Um, Some people just make noises about wanting to kill themselves. And when they do, when they actually mention it and talk about it and talk about their hopelessness and helplessness, that is your cue to listen and to ask them questions to be there and support them and really i say listen there's a leap approach listen empathize you know understand where they're coming from um agree on what you can agree like yeah life is tough it's very difficult you know i understand and it can be very difficult let's say when you're deeply in debt or you've gone through a very bad breakup and try to partner with the person how can i be there for you i'd like to you know come over more and you know let's let's work together on helping you to work on your finances I can help you with that. something to help them to start to give them hope direction and the number one thing which is connection connection with another human
1: being Greg I wanted to kind of take this suicide conversation a little bit different direction I wonder um, from a doctor's point of view is it ever okay to take your own life, and what I'm talking about um, since uh, just a conversation about suicide is more uh, prevalent now, which is a good thing. There's also a growing um, conversation about those who are suffering from debilitating diseases. They're never going to get better. Is it ever okay for them to, like, it's time for me to go?
3: Well, this is a great, another great question. And actually, we grappled with it before protease inhibitors in our community with the AIDS epidemic. Um, of course, there were many people, you know, people who were my age, my peers at that time, which was in my 20s at that time, um, who were very close to death. And as you remember, the, the, the suffering was immense. So, um, it was really important for us to to really think about how we can help people. There is, of course, something called palliative care, and palliative care is trying to help the person feel as comfortable as possible when they have a terminal illness. Um, but many people will also need what you're also talking about, is assisted suicide, mm-hmm. and a lot of... Um, a lot of people will go into a hospice situation and say a physician will leave enough say morphine for the person to do that but it, it, that is usually done with a lot of agreement from everyone um in some states especially we, we know oregon was a, a pioneer in this right um in california following close by and you know some others they we are looking very seriously at Uh, assisted suicide for people who are suffering and there really is not a um there's really not a good option that things are only going to get worse and i would say that's an extremely personal decision for all involved Um, but so it's hard for me to make any kind of weigh in on that except to to we've got to extend understanding to those people who are suffering and not put our worldview on to them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I, I'm gonna take this in a different direction. <laughs> uh, yes. the, the parents that are left, the friends, the um, children, uh, siblings who are left, um, when this friend of mine, when her uh, son committed suicide in Austin I went down to help them pack up the apartment and we were sitting at lunch and his father kept saying, why did you do this to me? And my answer was, he didn't do it to you. You know, I'm sure he didn't want to hurt you.
3: I I, I would agree with you, David, Mm -hmm. I'm sure he didn't want to hurt his dad. I mean, once in a while you hear about those. But they're generally, uh, they're more an accidental suicide, a suicide attempt to try to hurt the other person, but then they accidentally killed themselves in the process. And and that's a real thing. Unfortunately, it does reflect a certain uh, personality disorder. But besides that, yes, number one, I would say yes, he wasn't trying to hurt his father. He was trying to end his suffering and thought perhaps his father wouldn't care. Thought perhaps other people would just wake up the next morning and get on with life, which is one of the delusions people who are suicidal have. Um, of course, his father was devastated, and I would say to the person, you know, if he were alive, that's what your father's going to feel. He's going to feel like mm-hmm. you let you let him down. You hurt him, and I, I, as delusional as that may seem, that's usually that's often what people who are left feel like they've been hurt and they get angry at the person who did it and they also feel immense guilt. What could I have done to prevent this? So it really leaves so much suffering behind. It leaves more suffering behind than the person uh, who did it. But the person who did it is trying to end their own suffering. You see the connection here is that we, well the connection is we need connection. We need, to, we need to pull together and help each other. And we've got this society who's this weird pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and help yourself through every hardship and situation. Mm-hmm. And we praise people who have lots of money and gold chains and fancy cars. And we put people down who are unemployed and suffering and dealing with real medical and psychological issues. We don't want them near us. So it's, it's, we really have this thing in our society We we hold up people who are individually very fortunate. We put down people who are in, very individually unfortunate and we separate from people because they're not like us. So we've got to find ways to pull together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The last time you were on, or one of the last couple of times you were on, we did talk about yeah. the new suicide hotline nine eight eight. Um, you know, if you need to talk to somebody, dial that number. Um so you, you Call know, or text. Or text, yes.
3: Exciting. You can do both.
1: <laughs> so with that yeah. number in other organizations like um the Trevor's project, um, you know, it, it is more it's, it's, it's more acceptable to talk about it openly now about suicide do you it, is there anything that you can talk about maybe there's any measuring sticks to show that all these efforts are actually helping a little bit
3: oh you know I wish I could I mean in fact things are more problematic right now so, uh, first of all I want to say these these every effort we make like nine eight eight and the the immense effort that went into that, all the clunky rollout yeah it's it's coming up, and you know like nine one one went through this thing, but it's here and and it's exciting and i'm I'm not it's exciting not to have to remember ten numbers you can remember three nine eight eight but and it's everywhere in the nation, you don't have separate numbers, but the um thing that that we um uh I'm, I'm sorry, just blank. How funny!
1: No, no it's okay. We're just talking about—is so any of this helping?
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, I was got too excited about the number because I think it is a great thing. I do too. But we've got to look. Yeah, we've got to look at the fact that we've got some real hardship in our country, in our community, and you know, we went through waves of issues. We don't have to talk about COVID, but. We've got some real problems in our society just with separation, and it's so, there's such a sickness in our society. And we feel it with elderly, of course with our population, LGBTQ. Um, we, we see it with uh, people who are non-white, people who are not male, people who are not Christian. <laughs> if they don't belong to a community, if they feel separated from a community, if they feel ostracized from a community, they're going to feel um more depression more disconnection and thus suicide will will be more of an option that pops in their mind so what we've seen is an increase in suicide rates that seems to be happening and we we do there's a lot we'll see what the stats are we see an increase in what's called death of despair that was coined back in 2015 i believe when i looked in uh I did a study in uh, 2016, I was talking about middle-aged people because middle-aged people were, especially in the gay community, were bringing up this huge bulk of people who were um, suicidal um, and we saw this increased rate. And what we're seeing is these increased um, suicide rates happening in all these people who traditionally weren't in that. So we used to see high deaths of despair in minority communities and poor communities and different things. But now we're seeing these deaths of despair happening in this um, disaffected communities, people who are unemployed, people who are divorced, people who are isolated. And it just makes sense. The minute you're disconnected, you're gonna be at a higher rate. And we just see this happening everywhere. So it's a concern of mine um, and it's why I will probably go to my grave trying to preach that we need to be a little kinder to each other, nicer to each other, and we need to find connection with each other despite as difficult as it may seem in this world we're in right now.
0: Greg, stick with us. We need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Lauren Landis, and we'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Patty Fink, and you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. And that was Patty, but she is not here. The She's magic celebrating radio. your birthday. She's celebrating my birthday. <laughs> Speaking of celebrating my birthday, uh, do not get on Central Expressway this afternoon. Uh, I was late for the music show at noon because we were stuck in traffic for over an hour trying yeah. to get off. They're hanging girders for a new um, uh, bike trail. Yeah. That's mm. gonna go over the highway. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Greg Kayson. He's a Beverly Hills psychologist. He's been with us before uh, and we enjoy having him on. Um, I, I wanted to just ask a couple of questions about um, the two other suicides that I, that I know of. Oh, yeah. um, my cousin, We don't know why he committed suicide. I think it was because he was gay. And I don't know that for sure, but, you know, I know that. Um, How common is it for somebody in about as liberal a family as you can come from to contemplate suicide or even complete the suicide for being gay or lesbian or transgender, or
3: yeah, I don't, I mean, the, the family is going to be one aspect, but it's not going to be the only aspect. If your family can show you support, that is going to help your resilience. But it may be that he felt great shame anyway, or maybe people within the family did say things privately at a certain age that really lodged inside of him. It may be that he watched television shows or heard other media sources that said anti-gay things. It may be that he went to a church that said anti-gay things. It may, you know, his school, his classmates, of course, I grew up being gay was the worst thing. That's what all the bullies would call you, um, no matter what. I was Gay song. <laughs> oh, wow. They, they would make fun of me. Yeah. And uh, 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 even just saying that now makes me kind of feel bad, but you know, it, it, it had such a profound effect. And here I was, just a kid struggling um, in fifth grade, sixth grade, just trying to get by. Um, and so our anti gay messages can come from everywhere. And just because there are more positive messages mean, don't mean that the negative messages are out there. And as a as a, an example, we can just peer into the news right now, um, and things seem to be very dire. If I were a young gay person struggling with my identity, and I had parents putting out um, anti-gay legislation, anti-trans legislation, boards on their front lawn. If I had um, them talking about things, talking about, quote, grooming, which I haven't quite figured out what they're talking about there, but they're making a case that to be gay is so bad that somehow somebody has to turn you and they do it by giving you a book or becoming your friend and they're a gay person. So what you learn is that being gay is a very bad thing. You don't want to be it, and that you will bring shame upon the family if you do. So, if maybe the family is accepting, that would be great. But my in my family, we had a gay. Um, my family wasn't accepting, so I maybe I'm a bad example. But we had a gay. Um, my mom's cousin was gay, and I heard about that from my dad, especially who would make comments, make fun of them, do a listing voice, mm. you know talk About faggots, you know, we live by Laguna Beach, it was a very popular gay area. Talk about the faggots, look at the faggots, etc. etc. So, I mean, you know, you get these messages again. I wasn't in an accepting family, so um, I'm not a good example there, but I think you can still get the messages from everywhere else.
0: You know, I never got those messages, I was always wondering what was wrong with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. you know
3: it's it's your own it's your own uh personality too and your resilience and your exposure to things it not everyone grows up the same and you can grow up in a, in new york you know in an apartment right next to somebody else and they could be suffering much greater than you are mm-hmm. even though you think your families are the same you know same exposures same school etc that
1: that that's what i was going to say uh, uh greg uh, you know david maybe your cousin um grew up in a very liberal family, You, you uh, same family, but you just never know what's going on in somebody's individual head. And um, I was gonna ask you, uh, Greg, is there a difference between, when mm-hmm. it comes to the depression, is there a difference between uh, a chemical depression or something that causes depression, like e- an episode, episodic? Oh
3: yeah, no, very much. I think what, you know it's probably best for us to think that there's an interaction between biological and environmental influences, and for some some people, the biological is much stronger um, than their environment, um, so that they do have mood fluctuations naturally. These are people like with bipolar disorder and other disorders. Um, it, it could be environmental, where they hear these messages that you don't belong, etc. But you often have a connection with both. Um, where things are going back and forth. And David, you brought up a physical ailment. Mm-hmm. Interesting, physical ailments do um, create a lot of problems for us. Number one, um, the physical ailments, especially when you're a young man, believe it or not, um, you're taught that you're less of a man.
2: Mm-hmm. That,
3: that message is quite clear in society. Um, I think it happens with women too, but um, it's very definitely a male-oriented message. Uh, the other is that often when we have physical ailments, we feel hopelessness, we feel like we're undateable, we're unlovable, et cetera, et cetera. The other is that um, they can even cause physical symptoms and physical symptoms could leave us feeling tired, et cetera, not able to participate as much, you feel more disconnection, but often that tiredness, fatigue, et cetera, we can often send ourselves negative messages and become more depressed. So. I'm sorry to go into so much, but the bottom line is uh, that physical and uh, biological environment can have a, an impact on each other and can really multiply. Mm-hmm.
0: And I just wanted to mention my third suicide. Um, this one is questionably a suicide, but I consider it one. Um, she was the first person that I met in Dallas. And uh, we've remained friends over the years. We worked together. Uh, So she she worked in the office that uh, I was transferred here to work in. So I met her the first day that I was here. Um, I guess it was last year around Thanksgiving time. she, She and I talked and she said, did you get that COVID vaccine? And I said, yes. And she said, do you know what's in it? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> I, I had done a story on it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, you know, I'm not going to. They're just trying to poison us. They're, so she refused to get the vaccine. Two weeks later, she was in the hospital with COVID and died a week later.
1: And you consider that suicide? I, I
0: do consider it suicide because there was a way to prevent the illness.
1: Gotcha.
3: Gotcha. No, but it it wasn't intentional. I mean, she was fooled, duped um, by forces in our society that want to increase paranoia, and this is a bigger problem that's happening in our society. That. Paranoia, and really uh, there's a word for it called persecution paranoia. And it's, it's a paranoia. There's a type of paranoia called persecution, which is I'm currently in danger. Um, mm-hmm. And that basically uh, with persecution or, or feeling that, in, in, if you're part of the group, the anti-vax group, you're with the people who really know what's going on and you're staying away from harm. And you feel better about that. You feel like you're stronger for that. You feel like you're in the know. And the people who feel that persecution are are going to stay away from that. And they'll do things like get, like avoid vaccines and get COVID. And the people who get the uh, vaccine are less standard. You know I mean, <laughs> it's very unfortunate. And I, I'm so sorry to hear that. But I, I feel, and I understand, but I feel like she's a victim. Um, and maybe one of her own volition
0: in a certain way but it, it's still unfortunate yeah. yeah yeah well speaking of covid and uh people who have odd person okay. uh, odd people who <laughs> who stick together we have somebody who has been indicted four times on 91 felony charges plus he has a rape conviction Um, Who who could this be? uh, Yeah, I wonder. (laughs) I don't want to mention any names, but he might not be the best candidate to be the Republican Party's standard bearer. But his support is growing. Uh, Uh Neither election did he win the popular vote, and he won't win it again. My question is not a political one. It's not how can these people support him or somebody like Uh him. My question is, why don't they support somebody like him who doesn't have this baggage, who does have a chance of winning?
3: Well, that's a good question, David. I think if you go, there, you know, we can psychologically step out of the world of psychology into people who uh, were doing this. There's a Republican pollster called Frank Lutz. You, 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 if you've seen him, you, under, you know who I'm talking about, uh-huh. Where's a very identifiable toupee. Um, but he, um, he is going to, I mean, he, he talked about early in the process that there was a group of people, that there was one candidate, Trump. Oh, so sorry about that. I didn't mean to say that. But the uh, bottom line is there was one candidate who was really igniting people, and that he, he was trying to alert the elders in the party this is very serious. He's tapping into something that's there in society and this was really for the people who are feeling marginalized separated um feeling like they were disaffected and they finally found their messiah Mm there and they found a community and they found someone that was telling them what they wanted to hear and was giving them permission to say stick it to you because you're trying to rein me in and tell me what not to say and what not to do and he was trying to alert people and really was bringing up something that happens in societies over and over again, which is this falling for a messiah-type figure, falling for somebody that uh, really what I would call for the religious out there, the false prophet, <laughs> the person mm-hmm. who is, you know, going to be this person who stands up and, and says um, all the right things to them and makes them feel good about being now as opposed to being excluded they feel included and they feel like they're part of a group and they're with people like them and they adhere to that person almost in a black and white way such that you know with that person that we just talked about there was a recent poll by cbs that was stunning to me that really underlined this is that people um 71 percent of uh I forget, I think it was Republicans. Yeah, Republican primary voters. 71% said that um, that person that we're talking about is is they're going to trust him to tell the truth, where they only 63% trusted family and friends and only 42% trusted religious figures. He was the number one trusted figure among that group. So we really look at someone who's like this to be more than a politician, this is like a religious figure to them, or a cult leader, or um, some other type of thing. So, when we look at when we say this about this group, logic, indictments, etc., all the indictments are going to do is to say, "See, they are against us. See, they're trying to take our leader away from us. See, they're trying to crucify him." So, we've got to band together. So. I think we've got a real issue on our
0: hands. Right. So the problem is my question, because I'm going yeah. at it from a very practical, political standpoint, saying everything is showing that he can't win, but another candidate possibly could if they rallied around somebody yeah. and
1: uh, and people in that party voted for him. But so that's the problem with your question. You're thinking. You're thinking too logically you thinking too practical uh-huh. for a group that's not. I agree. They are not practical.
2: Hmm.
3: <laughs> I agree. And the interest I agree. I think this is right on. We we as human beings are not always logical or rational or practical. In fact, we're emotional and this is t- tapping into something very emotional, it's tapping into into core fears, which is a number one driver, and it's also c- tapping into uh, a sense of community and answer that there's somebody who quote alone can fix it although somehow for four years they didn't but the next time they will you know i mean it's always this promise of tomorrow in two weeks this will be fixed and then we all forget about it but the the issue here is that people are not going to be thinking logically or rationally um and it isn't just
1: about the message; it's
3: the messenger here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of
1: comparisons to this person to um, the followers of uh, Jim Jones and what happened, you know, there. Absolutely. What, what, I was going to say, would you agree with that? Like the the mental state.
3: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, and in fact, you know, I uh, uh, one of my advisors in my PhD program was a. Um, a University of Houston, and was actually a um, cult expert, mm-hmm. and he re- his research showed very clearly um, that people who join cults actually feel much better. They feel a sense of community, and if they ever decide to step outside, the community acts to push them back in or to excommunicate them completely. So you've got to realize the power of this that. Um, I can be okay and I'm one of you as long as I'm as long as I keep this up. But the minute you go against the leader or step outside and say something wrong, you suffer greatly. And we see this in all kinds of examples. I mean just look in the news. You see the people who like Bill Barr, who couldn't have been more of a stick effect for a long time, is finally going out and trying to do a, you know, some kind of apology tour. Um but, you know, they're going after him and, you know, all these other leaders, even though they were very um, close to him and, and are really responsible for the power that he gained during that time.
0: hmm. Huh. Well, why don't we take our break? You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Lauren Landis, and we're speaking to Dr. Greg Kasson. Uh, he is a Beverly Hills psychologist who's with us quarterly. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this.
1: This is Rafael McDonald from Resource Center in Dallas. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM.
0: And we're talking to Dr. Greg Kason. We were just talking about um, number 45. Uh, and <laughs> so that brings us to drag queens. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Because
1: no one spends more time on their
0: hair and makeup than 45. Exactly. Um, Texas passed an anti-drag queen law that's different than some other states. Now, all of the laws in Montana, in- Tennessee. Missouri, Tennessee, Florida, and Texas, they're all on hold. Federal judges have um, put all of them on hold. Uh, until they get a full hearing. Um, Our law though doesn't specifically mention drag queens, whereas the other states do. Ours says that if you wear any clothing or device uh, of the opposite sex, when children are around, you can be arrested and put in prison for a year. And if you did this in a venue, the venue can be heavily fined. Now, the wording in ours is so broad that it means that Tootsie, La Cage aux Faux, Mrs. Doubtfire, which is on its way here, uh, hairspray, none of those shows could be shown in Texas. The trans community very often wears medical devices of the opposite sex, cheerleaders. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders could be found in violation of this law. What is it about drag queens that all of a sudden stirred up national hysteria, especially in Montana, one of the uh, places where I'm sure most drag queens... Just dying to go perform. Yeah.
3: never been. <laughs> so, uh first of all a word about montana i have uh my grandma was from butte montana uh, it's a beautiful place a minor, or I, I mean a minor yeah uh-huh yeah it was a uh i mean butte maybe maybe you may, may not use those words quite as much but the uh but, you know, it's a, it, Montana overall is a very beautiful place. But mm-hmm. It's a very sparse place with a sparse population.
2: Excuse
3: me. And um, when, when we're... And I hate to come back to this theme, but, you know, when we're more separated from others and we have a more monolithic community, we don't experience diversity, and we know that the more exposure you have to people who are different than you are, the better your attitude is going to be toward those communities. So you've got this weird thing. These people live, you know, in small towns and somewhat isolated, most of them. Um, These are like the residents, not all the rich people that have moved there just for the summer. But um, they uh, feel, you know, they feel... uh, like they're bonded with their group and that, you know, there's this enemy out there that's going to corrupt their children. And they think that if they see a man wearing a wig and lipstick, um, that that's going to cause their child to be a trans child. And they, they see this in various propaganda, like machines on TV, on the internet. And uh, they believe, because we all want a scapegoat, because we all love to blame our problems on something else or somebody else, that that's the scapegoat. Um, they're taught to fear that person, and they coalesce around them. So they feel better when they can say they're the enemy, they're the bad person, we'll excommunicate them, and then they feel like they're safe. So it really comes down to tribalism. I hate to say it. Um, you know, it's a very old human need. We want to be around our safe community and we don't want those dangerous people around us. Um, And people never like, you know, I I doubt that law was aimed at women who put on jeans or women who put on a man's shirt or put on their husband's shirt um, and go go out with it tied around, you know, like put on the shirt and they'll tie it around like one hip and to look kind of cool. But that's covered. In
0: in, in the Texas law, what they're doing is actually illegal and can lead to a prison sentence.
3: Yeah, but I doubt any women will be, uh, you know, thrown in jail for wearing overalls that are actually men's overalls. I think it's aimed at men who dress as women. And that's because we want to fear um, people who are who are taking away from traditional, what we think is a male role um, and then putting on women's clothes. So it's really a bizarre form of sexism that they're seeing it as inferior. And also, David, I think there's a reality and I've certainly encountered these people, the the heterosexual person who is afraid that they'll be attracted to or fooled into having sex with somebody who is their same sex or, 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 or gender. Um, because of the um because of the gender presentation of the person versus the um, sex they were born or or uh, perhaps something like that so it's really it's a form of fear in some people and they can be the most volatile or racial
1: it, it is a form of fear and it's Unfortunately, they are making children the scapegoat, but they've always kind of done oh, yeah. that uh, when it comes to our community. You know when I was a little kid, you know you, you boys weren't supposed to were not supposed, supposed to play with dolls that was going to make him gay. Um, you know, if, if, if you were around a, a open, worked with me a openly gay school teacher, <laughs> that's going to make you gay, and so it's like it doesn't work like that. Um, they've always treated our sexual orientation, our identity, as something they're just going to rub off. And it doesn't work that way. Because if it did, no, we'd do a wrong. better job of it. Exactly.
3: Yes, we would. But, Laurent, I mean, what cracks me up is didn't you grow up in a world where all the literature you read in school, all the school books, the examples, and, um, the TV thing, everything was heterosexual? Everything was. Somehow that everything and that didn't rub off on us right. We grew up in heterosexual families. We were around heterosexuality all the time. We knew that liking somebody of the opposite sex was the way to go that would have that would have given us a green card into society and yet nonetheless we felt excluded because we had a different desire that we learned very early we had to hide yep until we couldn't hide it anymore. and that is it, it, that is a very very different state and shows the profound blindness of people who are heterosexual and think that somehow their sexual orientation was something that they learned not something that was born that is biological and what's so and what's what's environmental is how you present it it's how comfortable you feel in the world and how you you know express it but what's what's your sexual orientation and gender orientation is biological. And so that's going to come from inside. And what we can do is either nurture that or we can try to um, uh, try to smash it out. But it doesn't smash out. People just learn to keep it inside. And that's why we have higher suicide rates. That's why we have higher depression, anxiety, substance abuse. We can go on down the line.
1: Um, I wanted to mention a, a story that just came out just a week. Um, there's a Minnesota drag performer who's, you know, she's she or he is caught in in the middle of all this. Um, his name is Dylan uh, Karcher. He his drag name is Roxy Menacucci, and he uh, <laughs> he uh, is from the city of Austin, Minnesota, and he was the bingo card caller. Um, at the Moore County uh, County Fair for years. Well, this year he was not invited to do so. And well, I should hope not. Do you know what those drag queens are doing? They're grooming. <laughs> um, and you know, when they looked into it, and they said that you know they just think it's too much of a risk. The uh, uh, I guess the organizers of it. Not not they obviously. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, but since he's been doing it so long, they didn't have a problem with him. And this is a this is a straight organization. They love them, as a matter of fact. Um, but because of all of the protests, um, the anti-drag uh, uh, performances, the uh, protests, they decided not to have them back this year, and that's unfortunate. Um, so it seems like they're winning on several fronts. I think it seems like that right now, and, and in many ways that
3: is- Something analogous, and I hate to call to other, you know, societies in the past, but this has happened before, and we we need to pay attention Mm -hmm. um, because things can get much worse. Um, So we need to take this as some pretty severe warning signs. Um, The reality is, yes, things are are bad. They're only going to get worse. I would hate to be um, someone who's just a a 10-year-old kid who might love let's say rupaul's drag race and then they start to hear how terrible this all is and they and they start to think oh these people are terrible oh wait a minute, i think i'm one of these people and then it causes great psychological damage the thing i really hate about these people is that they think they're protecting children but what they're doing is destroying the Mm -hmm. psychological they really are so many children out there yeah
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, it hurts Hurt. yeah um just even if your kid doesn't want you know but who knows what they would if they see a drag uh, performer and what it might light up inside of them doesn't mean that they want to be a drag performer themselves but they're thoroughly entertained um i've seen so many videos of, of little kids at drag readings and just having the times of their lives um wh- why would you want huh? to why would you want to put that fire out
3: and, you know, what's so interesting is when you're a little kid and, you know, you do, you see people in a very two-dimensional way. You think that Mickey Mouse at, at Disneyland is real. You right. think that, you know... Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. You, wait. Make, you see a lady...
0: D- Mickey Mouse isn't real?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I won't break that one for you, David, but, the, um, but I know his patent is coming off very soon. But the, uh, or trademark, I guess. But the, uh, uh, what else? Uh, you know, Santa Claus is real. And you you see a drag queen, you don't actually think this is not a woman. What you'll think is this is a clown woman. You know, like a woman with really big exaggerated features and makeup and who's hilarious and fun and has big hair. So it's, it's kind of interesting that... Um, that they think that people have this really incredibly nuanced view of what's going on and then will think oh indeed you know I want to be this I want to be gay now or I want to be trans because I'm seeing this person reading me a story it's just it's, it's, I don't know any anything any sign anywhere that shows that that's <laughs> ever been the case even once
1: yeah because
3: it hasn't been
0: <laughs> okay, so related to that, the other public enemy yeah. number one are librarians, because oh, they're yeah. trying to get our kids to do something i can can, don't know if I can say it on the air, but they want them to read books. I know can you imagine that? <laughs>
3: oh, and not to just read books, but to get excited about reading I know just enjoy reading <laughs> I mean it it. it And librarians, I I don't know about you, but librarians were always the nice people in school. They were always always helpful people. Always. They helped you get your, they pointed you toward places you could find something to write your report. Um, They
0: always shushed me. They
3: were just all, they shushed. But, you know, and I had to laugh when I heard what was happening in Texas. Um, Not laugh in a good way, but laugh in sort of a kind of sad way. I'm like, where do the little gay kids eat their lunch? Because, you know, certainly uh, going to the library is often a refuge for many kids. It's like a a place that you can go and, you know, feel like you can find other worlds. Um, It's really tragic, the whole thing, and it really is embarrassing, and I feel bad for people who, you know, I, I don't even know, I feel bad for the people of the future of the state of Texas, because is, is this a dumbing down of the population? Absolutely. It's really a concern for me. Yeah.
0: Well, not really. Um, Leslie Newman, who wrote Heather Has Two Mommies and a number of other books, uh-huh. she, has, she probably has more books on the uh, ban lists than anybody else. And sales of her books are through the the roof.
3: <laughs> that is the one kind of silver lining here. There's a person, I think on maybe Emerson, B.C., please don't quote me, but his name is Ali Velshi, and he has a banned book club. I heard about this on a podcast, and I was like, oh, my God, this is such a great idea. And he's just going over banned books one after the next. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so many of these books, like Heather has to mommy." it would probably be like a very marginal of interest to maybe specific people but in general not a a big one but now of course you and i know the title we talk about it it's it's probably in every home i mean in so many ways it's actually making it more accessible so there is a paradoxical effect
1: well the problem is i mean yeah yahoo for the authors who are who um who have banned books and they' you know their sales are going through the roof, but it still hurts uh, the children in the long run because they don't have access to those books in their regular libraries, and unless you have a parent yeah. that's going out of their way to find those banned books, they're not going to come across them and that, and, and that, know, that, right, that's so. the problem okay. so no, you're right uh,
3: Yeah, most are not going to have the money to go out and buy it and they their, their parents. They're not going to bring it into the home, so it becomes banned material. Right. Yeah, it's not a a good situation.
0: Right. The kids who need access to the book are not going to get it in the long run. Well, Greg, we are just about out of time. I want to thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Greg. Always a pleasure.
3: Thank you, you guys. You guys are wonderful.
0: And we'll see you in December.
3: Thank you, and happy Rosh
0: Hashanah. Thank you. And for all of us here at Lambda Weekly, oh, next week our uh, guest is Julie Johnson. That's right. So it should be a good show. Uh, For all of us here at Lambda Weekly, have a good week.